Hi everyone, this is Mike DeBliss. This podcast is on the topic of civil criminal coordination, the important interconnections between civil tax and criminal tax. It's a fascinating topic because it uh, speaks to the civil tax penalties and the impact that a conviction for a tax crime has on the um, examination and um, assessment of civil tax penalties. Um, so it's going to consist of an overview of and um, a little bit of background information on the various uh, tax penalties and how they are impacted by a conviction. We'll also discuss a little bit of uh, collateral estoppel um, insofar as um, a conviction for a tax crime has on the government's uh, burden of proving fraud for purposes of the civil tax fraud penalty, which is the 800-pound uh, gorilla of all tax penalties. Let me give you a little bit of background information so we can put all of this in uh, its right context. Historically, the government has proceeded with criminal tax investigation and prosecution first, suspending audit and collection until after the criminal proceedings. That's the policy. And this policy reflects several considerations. The most important consideration is that civil discovery could reveal too much of the government's case too soon. And um, it's more of a strategic uh, consideration that um, influences this policy. Uh, the government is concerned that taxpayers could use civil discovery procedures to find out more about its case than the criminal discovery procedures allowed. And uh, that was the uh, reason why the government um, worked up their um, their criminal investigation and prosecution first, suspending audit and collection until after the criminal proceedings had ended. Well, the rationale for that has kind of been um, diminished. Uh, prosecutors today are freer in what they will voluntarily disclose, and for good reason. A lot of uh, prosecutors have been admonished by the uh, federal courts and by the judges for failing to disclose information that the defendant was entitled to. So today, um, the government um, tends to turn over um, most every most um, uh, most every piece of evidence, um, especially if it has um, in the even in the least bit. Um, the uh, tendency to exculpate the defendant. Uh, no prosecutor wants to be in a position where they're being admonished um, by the court and possibly even um, disbarred for an ethical violation of their uh, reciprocal duty to um, turn over to the defense discovery that uh, it's entitled to, especially discovery that tends to exculpate the defendant. So uh, this policy consideration of revealing too much too soon as the basis for um, proceeding with the criminal tax investigation and prosecution first has kind of been eroded. 
Um, nonetheless, the government adheres to its traditional practice of doing the criminal side first. Um, there is an exception to that. Uh, the exception to that practice is tax shelter cases. Uh, the government tends to work the civil and criminal side simultaneously, but outside of the tax shelter context, the historical policy of criminal first, civil later is um, the um, recognized pattern. Now, even if the government doesn't suspend civil proceedings, a judge might. Um, so in the unlikely case where the government um, doesn't suspend the civil proceedings, the judge might. And the reason why is because the judge might be concerned that the government might use the civil proceedings to force the taxpayer to either waive his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination um, or face some stiff penalty in the civil proceeding. Uh, so the judge um, you know, has a concern that uh, the defendant taxpayer could be put in a very um, unfair position where they're forced to uh, waive their Fifth Amendment privilege or um, face a stiff penalty um, in the civil proceedings. And so uh, a judge might mitigate this concern by staying the civil case pending resolution of the prosecution. And essentially that just means um, adjourning the civil case until the criminal case has ended. Now let's talk a little bit about civil liability and pleas. Um, a judge may be more inclined to allow a downward adjustment for acceptance of responsibility if the taxpayer defendant has paid or agreed to pay the tax liability. Um, at the same time, um, taxpayer loses nothing. Um, a payment is not an admission of liability or an admission that the limitations period remains open. Uh, the taxpayer um, still has the right to argue about liability later, uh, post-conviction that is, um, and paying the tax does not eliminate the possibility of adjudicating uh, the matter civilly. Uh, taxpayer can always file a refund claim with the IRS. Now, what happens when the government gets around to the civil side? Well, it will assert against the taxpayer not just deficiency and in interest, but also civil penalties. And um, what I'm going to do now is cover the various civil tax penalties that the government will assess when it gets around to the civil tax case. Um, in this instance, we're going to assume that our taxpayer has been convicted of a tax crime, unless I indicate otherwise, and now we are moving on to the civil portion of the case. So even though the government may have gotten its pound of flesh out of the defendant in the criminal tax case via a conviction, uh, the government isn't going to uh, let go or, um, you know, simply um, leave the defendant alone. Uh, the government is going to um, assert against the taxpayer um, a deficiency and interest and civil penalties. So there's going to be two stages to this. The uh, criminal stage where the defendant was criminally prosecuted and now the civil phase where the government is coming after 
uh, the deficiency, interest, and um, the civil penalties. Uh, so again, um, just because a defendant has been convicted and um, may even be going to jail and serving a stiff prison sentence, that um, in no way will deter the government from um, dropping its civil tax case. So let's begin with the civil fraud penalty. Uh, this is the most frequently asserted civil penalty. It is um, by far the 800-pound gorilla of civil tax penalties. Uh, and, and the reason why is because uh, the civil fraud penalty is the largest civil tax penalty in dollar amount. Um, when I uh, speak to the largest civil tax penalty, I'm referring to 75% of the understatement attributable to fraud. Um, the second uh, reason why this penalty gets such a bad rap is because when fraud is established, there is no statute of limitation impediment to the assessment of civil liability. So uh, the tiniest bit of fraud um, will um, simply swallow up any statute of limitation um, impediment to the assessment of civil liabilities, meaning that even if the uh, three-year period of statute of limitations has passed, uh, the government can still assess a civil fraud penalty. So fraud um, kind of uh, freezes the statute of limitation and it, statute of limitations such that it can no longer be a defense to uh, the taxpayer. And the third reason is that a determination of fraud undercuts the possibility of a taxpayer discharging liabilities in a later bankruptcy proceeding. Um, so the exception to the uh, taxpayer's ability to discharge um, uh, civil tax uh, liability in a bankruptcy proceeding is a determination of fraud. Again, um, a determination of fraud um, obliviates any opportunity that the taxpayer may have of discharging um, the civil fraud penalty in a bankruptcy proceeding. And uh, there is a fourth as well, fourth reason why this penalty is uh, the Grinch that stole Christmas. Although the burden of proof as to civil fraud is higher than that for other civil penalties, it's lower than the burden for criminal fraud. Um, as I discussed in an earlier podcast, um, in the criminal realm, the government has to prove each and every element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. But the burden of proof for the civil fraud penalty is by clear and convincing evidence. So there's a hierarchy, um, and I've discussed that um, as well in some of the earlier podcasts. Um, the first is preponderance of the evidence. The second is clear and convincing evidence. And the third is beyond a reasonable doubt. As we get higher up that pyramid, um, it become the boulder becomes larger and harder for the um, for the person to roll up the mountain, and that's the visual that I've always kept in my mind when it comes to the burden, um, especially when it comes to beyond a reasonable doubt, because the framers of the Constitution wanted to ensure that innocent people were not wrongfully convicted. 
And so that's why um, they made the burden um, and they considered the burden of beyond a reasonable doubt to be substantial. Uh, some courts have actually defined it in terms of 80% certainty, um, but um, that varies uh, from, uh, from um, a circuit to circuit. But um, it just goes to show you how difficult that boulder is uh, when it comes to beyond a reasonable doubt. So let's circle back to the civil tax fraud penalty. Um, essentially, a taxpayer who fraudulently prevents um, or minimizes assessment of taxes may file a false return. It's in the filing of the false return that the civil fraud uh, penalty applies. And I should say specifically that the civil fraud penalty applies only to filed returns. So how about the situation um, that arises when the taxpayer fails to file um, or um, files a late return? Uh, they tend to be penalized. Those two uh, actions, failure to file and late filing, are penalized under a separate section, a separate um, a separate tax penalty section of the code, and that's found under section 6651. The normal failure to file rate is 5% of the tax liability per month, and there is a ceiling. It's capped at 25%. When the failure to file is due to fraud, however, the delinquency penalty is raised from 5 to 15% uh, per month and the ceiling is also raised from 25 to 75%, um, and it's capped at 75%. So how about um, our filed returns? Um, section 6663, which is a section where the civil tax fraud penalty is found, imposes a penalty equal to 75% of the portion of the underpayment that is attributable to fraud. Uh, what tends to come up frequently in the context of the civil fraud penalty are uh, joint returns um, involving married uh, couples. Uh, most married couples file joint returns. And a uh, question that comes up frequently is whether fraud by one spouse can be attributed, can be attributed to the other. Um, under 6663C, of the penalty, it states that the penalty applies only to the spouse who the IRS proves to have committed fraud. So if the IRS is able to uh, prove fraud against the husband, for example, um, that does not mean that it um, automatically applies to the wife. Um, what would have to happen is that the IRS would have to prove it against not against um, the husband and the wife. It cannot um, get a buy as to one of the spouses. So if it proves it against the husband, that does not mean that it's automatically attributed to the wife. In order to assert fraud against one spouse, uh, once again, the government must have evidence of fraud as to that spouse. There is no imputed fraud. Uh, the wife does not become liable for the civil tax fraud penalty simply because the husband 
committed tax fraud and the government was able to prove it. If the government wants to pursue the wife for fraud, it must independently prove fraud as to the wife. Now, sometimes uh, that results in a split. Um, and what is interesting here is that um, the government, uh, the IRS, that is, may issue a statutory notice of deficiency um, when, when it cranks up the civil case. And, um, you know, just paraphrasing, the way this might look is that um, here's the amount of the deficiency with respect to the return. Uh, you are both liable for the deficiency. However, what the government might do is bifurcate uh, this um, liability by stating, husband, you're liable for the civil tax fraud penalty under 6663. Wife, um, you're not off the hook entirely. Um, you're not liable for the civil tax fraud penalty, but you are liable for the accuracy-related penalty under Section um, 6662. And as you will come to find out, um, that is also known as a 20% penalty. But suffice to say, the government has to prove fraud as to both spouses um, only if it asserts the fraud penalty against both. Now, if the government establishes, and this is what's very interesting um, because um, it's a little bit counterintuitive to what you might think. If the government establishes that any part of the underpayment is attributable to fraud, um, the burden of going forward then shifts to the taxpayer. So um, it's a very loose um, moving burden um, because any part of the underpayment attributable to fraud, it doesn't mean all of the underpayment attributable to fraud. It could be the tiniest fraction um, that the government is able to, um, uh, to prove of the underpayment that is attributable to fraud. That would automatically force or that would automatically shift the burden to the taxpayer and then the uh, burden of going forward is uh, on the shoulders of the taxpayer. The taxpayer must then prove what portions of the return weren't attributable to fraud in order to reduce the understatement against which that 75% um, is applied. So that's how the dance works. Uh, government establishes the tiniest fraction of the underpayment that is tr attributable to fraud, burden then shifts, meaning that um, the, uh, the government has essentially uh, served up um, the, uh, the, uh, first, uh, the first serve in the tennis match, and uh, they've uh, successfully proven um, even the tiniest part of the underpayment is attributable to fraud. The ball is now in the, um, in the taxpayer's uh, section of the court, and uh, that means that um, the the burden has shifted to the taxpayer to prove what portions of the return weren't attributable to fraud. And only if the taxpayer um, can um, successfully um, successfully uh, uh, successfully uh, hit that ball back, to the government side of the court, 
um, by, uh, by meeting its burden, will the understatement um, be uh, reduced? Um, will the understatement against which is 75% is applied be reduced? The question of um, how is fraud established comes up frequently. Uh, there are a number of ways. Um, you've probably heard of the badges of fraud. Uh, they are numerous. Um, some of those include failing to maintain adequate books and records. Um, it could be sloppy accounting. It could be sloppy record keeping. It could be the destruction of uh, books and records um, that would otherwise um, have painted a, a roadmap to the fraud. And then um, fraud can be established by failing to file returns, concealing assets. Uh, does imposing civil fraud penalty on top of a criminal tax penalty violate the double jeopardy clause? No. Some of you um, are familiar with the double jeopardy clause. It um, essentially means that a defendant cannot be tried for the same offense twice. Um, so if the government has obtained a conviction against a defendant, say for example um, for tax evasion, the government uh, can't uh, come back uh, three weeks, three months, three years, a um, hundred years later and try the defendant for that very same tax evasion case. Um, double jeopardy kicks in. Uh, equally so, if the defendant is acquitted of the charge, the government can't come back later on and try the case over again um, because it feels that uh, the jury uh, didn't see the evidence clearly or that the jury was a runaway jury. The government only gets one bite at the apple, and that's, um, that's the law. What some of you um, may uh, what some of you may get confused with, and it is important to um, provide a distinction here, is with the fact that a hung jury, um, a case where the um, jury was unable to come to a unanimous decision, um, in those situations, the government has discretion to uh, retry the case. Um, so if there is a hung jury, meaning uh, there's not a unanimous verdict, uh, 12 jurors were unable to agree on whether um, the government had met its burden of proof and proved each and every element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt, it, there could be even just one holdout. In that case, um, the judge would declare a mistrial. The government in that case reserves the right to uh, retry the defendant um, on that offense if it chooses. Um, in some cases, there is a subsequent trial. In other cases, um, the government uh, may plea bargain the case or may dismiss the charges altogether. If you were following the men uh, the um, Menendez case um, in New Jersey federal court, uh, he was, uh, there was a mistrial declared on um, most of the counts of the indictment, and the government uh, ultimately decided to dismiss those charges. And um, as a result, they did not go back to trial. 
Let's move on now to talk about the accuracy-related penalty. That's found under Section 6662. The accuracy-related penalty is an alternative to the fraud penalty. Under 6662A, the penalty amount is 20% of the underpayment. So um, it's radically uh, different than the 75% civil tax fraud penalty. Um, to be exact, it's 55% less, and um, it's 20% of the underpayment. The penalty applies whenever any of six conditions exist. Um, I won't cover all of them, but um, I'll just give you a sampling of the first uh, few. The first basis is negligent or intentional disregard of tax rules. The second uh, basis is substantial understatement of income tax. And um, as part of uh, the mechanism to finance Obamacare, uh, there was legislation um, in 2010 that amended uh, Section 6662 to add a sixth penalty basis. So before 2010, I believe there were only five. And then in 2010, um, the uh, legislature amended 6662 to add a sixth. That basis is a violation of the economic substance doctrine. And um, the significance of that is that it's a strict liability penalty, which uh, means that there's uh, really no defense against it. Um, if you violated the economic substance doctrine, then there's an automatic assessment of the accuracy-related penalty. Um, with the accuracy-related penalty, the government bears an initial burden of production after the government um, uh, after the government. Um, does that, the burden of proof then shifts to the taxpayer to rebut the penalty. Typically, uh, Section 6662 comes up in the civil criminal context in one of two ways. Uh, the first way is when the taxpayer defendant is acquitted um, for tax evasion. And uh, sometimes I refer to tax evasion under the section of the code where it's found. It's um, section 7201. So if you hear that those numbers 7201 thrown about, uh, that is referring to tax evasion, which is the um, uh, the 800-pound gorilla of um, criminal or, or of tax crimes, if you will. The government, um, in this case, we have a taxpayer who was initially charged under 7201, uh, but acquitted. The government doesn't have a strong case of tax fraud uh, when it gets to the civil side. So the government might then assert uh, 6663, um, which uh, the government um, might assert 6663, or in the alternative, 6662. Uh, so remember 6663 is our 800-pound gorilla of civil tax penalties. That is our civil tax fraud penalty. Um, but 6662 is our accuracy-related penalty, and it could be a viable um, alternative for the government in a situation where the taxpayer is acquitted under 7201. Because keep in mind, the government has to prove fraud um, in a case of a civil tax fraud penalty. 
And even though the burden is lower for proving fraud for the civil tax fraud penalty than it is for proving uh, willfulness under tax evasion, which must be proven under the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt, um, the government might still opt to assess the accuracy-related penalty for a defendant acquitted of tax evasion. So if the government loses the um, civil tax fraud penalty, at least it can get the accuracy-related penalty, uh, which has a lower standard of proof. Um, In the case of an accuracy-related penalty, um, the government need not prove fraud. Um, The government might uh, try to assess both penalties, um, and um, if the taxpayer decides to hold the government to its um, burden and force forces the government to uh, go to trial to prove the civil tax fraud penalty, and this would be in a civil uh, context, um, the government um, you know, would make out its case, but if it loses, um, it still um, has the opportunity of um, making out a case for the accuracy-related penalty because the accuracy-related penalty um, doesn't require the government to prove fr- fraud and um, in that case has a lower standard of proof. Um, another context in which this accuracy-related penalty comes up is in the case of a jointly filed return. Um, the government uh, might think that it can prove fraud against one spouse but not the other. So what will it do? It'll assert fraud against uh, one and the accuracy-related penalty against the other spouse. Delinquency penalties. Um, the civil penalty for failing to timely file returns is uh, found under 6651A1, and that's for delinquent uh, penalties. How about um, some of the other civil penalties that we have? There are a myriad of other civil penalties that uh, parallel criminal penalties or could apply in circumstances where criminal tax prosecution is on the horizon. Um, there, for example, are a number of civil tax penalties that relate to tax advisors. Um, I'll give you uh, just two of them. Uh, 6694A penalizes income tax return preparers who negligently advise taxpayers. And um, based on that negligent advice, it results in the taxpayers um, making understatements on their returns. Um, There's also section 6700 uh, that penalizes those who organize, sell interest in, or promote abusive tax shelters.